Gracious God, we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from your mouth. Make us hungry for this heavenly food, that it may nourish us today in ways of eternal life. Through Jesus Christ, the bread of heaven. Amen. Amen. It's good to see you all. Uh, we are, if you don't know already, in a series of the book of Exodus. And in Exodus, we saw from the very beginning uh, something that happened that started with tragedy, darkness of even genocide. God taking these people, redeeming them, calling them his own, um, saving them, bringing them to the mountain, giving them the word or the commandments that he has or the law. And now we are in this place where we have been learning most recently about the tabernacle, how it's built, all the little things, um, the measurements, the poles, and the, all the hooks that need to be put in, what kind of fabric is used, what kind of hide is used too. Last week we had Pastor Paul uh, give us a sermon about the priestly garments. And we are reminded that the priestly garment that we have on now is not of our own making. It's not of anything in this world. But it is made from something even rarer than the rarest jewel that you could find anywhere in the universe. And we are not clothed with the righteousness and the blood of Jesus Christ. And that is our garment. And all these things we have been taught and we come to kind of the end of what God is saying to Moses. So we saw that God says, go out of Egypt. He takes them out. There's plagues, there's miracles, there's insanity that's happening, water rising, people crossing the sea, and then it coming down, their enemies. You come to this mountain, and God is now giving them this law. And so we come to the end of that portion, and he ends with something very interesting. I think it's quite fascinating that he would end with the teaching on the Sabbath. He ends with the teaching on the Sabbath. And this is what we're going to go through this morning. And questions like this should come up. Do Christians keep the Sabbath? In the New Covenant, meaning in Jesus Christ, are we to keep the Sabbath holy as an authoritative command? What are we allowed to do on the Sabbath? And what are we not allowed to do on the Sabbath? And these questions will come up. And I think these questions are important. They will be answered. But let's go to the text today, see what the Word says about the Sabbath, and especially in Exodus. In the building and ordering of the tabernacle, the priests and his garments, the altar of incense, the bronze basin, the census tax, and all these things that God has teaching Moses so that he can in turn teach his people, we end on the Sabbath. So why is it important? How serious was it for the people of God to know how serious God was considering the Sabbath. Well, in the beginning of what was read today, the Lord says, above all. Above all. He says that. He starts out saying about the Sabbath, above all. So in the very least, we should consider what we are about to read and listen to is incredibly, incredibly important. Uh, there are some terms that are kind of um, just used by Christians sometimes, you would think. But there are terms in there that um, we may not know or the origin of it or what it really means. Words like holy. Uh, if you're like me, when you hear the word holy, 
if you're a little older, you think of Phil Rizzuto. If you're a Yankees fan, you know what I'm talking about. There's a commentator. He always said, holy cow. So when he retired, they brought out a cow and they put a halo on the cow's head. And then, holy cow. But holy, what does holy mean? Holy, in a sense, means separated, doesn't it? And if you went to Sunday school, you know this. Holy is separate. So it would make you feel like this person is different if this person is holy. It could be even to the extent of, let's say, a basketball. An NBA player walked in this room, not just because he's tall, you go holy, but you would say, this person is different. And when you stood next to him, you would see there's a huge difference between yourself and this basketball player. A lot of people would think, if I'm talking about the word holy, or we think monk, right? Or some kind of um, religious person. And um, some, some, some have said to me, no offense to you, uh, meaning me, but there was a time when I wore shorts to uh, a restaurant in Pal Park. And someone in Pilgrim Church came up and saw me. I was wearing shorts, so I was going to a restaurant in Pal Park, in Broad Avenue, and came up to me, he's like, whoa, you're Pastor Eugene? He's like, yeah, it's like, you don't look like a pastor. Like, should I wear these, uh, should I wear my black robe everywhere I go? So these things are, um, these notions of holiness is in us. What does it really mean to be holy? And is it different? Would you consider holiness and the character of holiness, even in me, different if I came up, let's say, here on stage in shorts and a t-shirt instead of what I'm wearing now, a tie and you know, a jacket? And these things are in our minds. But holy means separated, not like the rest of us. And maybe that's where it's kind of coming from, but I think it's worthy of a little bit more study. We need to go into it. And in Isaiah, when Isaiah was talking about the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon the throne, high and lifted up the train of his robe, filled the temple. You guys remember this in Isaiah chapter 6? And above him stood the seraphim. And they had six wings, two covered his eyes, two covered their bodies, and with two, uh, two covered their feet, two and two they, they flew. And this is what they said to one another when they saw God. They said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And the foundation shook at the voice of Him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And so we see this picture of what holiness is. There is a separation uh, between something that is holy and not you. There is something separate about something that is holy. So I'm going to go a little further in this when we think about this. Um, is the sun holy? Is the sun holy? Not S-O-N. People who grew up in church now. No, I'm talking about the sun. Is the sun holy? Well, in a sense, we have to start thinking about what holiness is. Is it separate from us? And then even the sun being separate from us, let's say, you know, we have seasons, depending on the earth uh, axis or tilt, if it's tilted away, we have winter and that kind of thing. If it's tilted toward, we have summer. We have different distances because it's, it's not a circular orbit. It's an ellipsis and all that stuff you learned in fifth grade. You guys remember that? But then depending on where the earth is in this, um, something that they call the Goldilocks zone. 
and in this Goldilocks zone is where you could have life. So if the Earth moved, let's say, even closer to the Sun, like it did, uh, like Venus is, then the surface would be 400 degrees and we couldn't live there. Uh, if the Earth moved a little bit further, let's say toward Mars, and we couldn't live there because Mars is a frozen desert. And so we're just in this perfect zone. And if we moved a little bit closer or a little bit further, there wouldn't be life as we know it. In fact, if we moved a little bit closer, let's say four, uh, four million miles, or we, if, if uh, no, we'd be dead, four million miles, but um, if we moved a little bit closer so that the temperature of the Earth went up like four degrees, then uh, the sea temperature, uh, well, I'm sorry, the, the sea level would rise by about 150 <laughs> feet and we wouldn't have cities. Like, like most of our coastal cities would be gone. Um, and that's why everybody's just so concerned about the global warming and the effects on the earth. And NASA is now saying it's about 0.8 degrees it's gone up within the last um, few decades uh, because of you know, you could blame other things. You could say this is just a natural thing, but 0.8 degrees, almost one degree, so three more degrees, and you would have life almost unbearable. Cities just gone. Like Manhattan wouldn't be floating anymore. It'd be under, that kind of thing. And so just a little bit of change, even from the sun and the temperature that we have, we see that we're not in this Goldilocks zone, and that life isn't, that we know it isn't possible. And so who can say the sun then is something that we can just treat like a friend? It's like, hey buddy, and then you could just zip up, teleport to the sun, and be like, I'm here sun, I mean, you, you die just a few million miles into it. It's 93 miles, million miles away, so even if you went like three million miles in, you'd still be dead, just a fraction closer to the sun, and then you'd be dead. When, they, when it has solar flares, I should stop. But, um, <laughs> All these things, you, you, you read about it, you learn about it, this is all fifth grade and you love it, but even a little bit of a difference. And you see, the sun is separate from us. And that's why in secular religions and non, non, well, the non-Judeo-Christian religion, people would worship the sun. We talked about yoga, how you have to sometimes say hi to the sun, because even people had this innate idea that the sun was separate from us. And... Even in the English language, we say Earth, Venus, Mars, but we don't call Sun, Sun, we call it the Sun. Um, so there, there are things that we have taken up in our culture and language. But how much more so? So I, I make, I'm saying all these things to make this point. We can't even go three million miles close to the Sun, going, hey buddy, I'm going to go closer to you. The Sun is separate from us. In that sense, it's holier. It's separate, right? How much more so? When Isaiah went to God, the holy God, the creator of all that is, the sun is only really holy in our solar system. There are other stars out there. But God, the creator, there's no one like God. There's no being in the entire universe like God, nor will there ever be. And Isaiah is taken up to where God is, his throne, where angels can't even look at him. They have to cover their eyes and their feet, and they have to constantly be in there, meaning in motion. They just can't stay still in, that, in His presence. And they're yelling out to each other, crying out, Holy, Holy, Holy. And when Isaiah would be zipped up into this, he would immediately say, Woe is me, 
So you would think like, oh, I go to the sun. It's nice. It's kind of warm. I like this. I want to move closer to the sun. That's not the case. Even if we got moved into the sun, we'd be incinerated immediately. And this is what he just says out of just uh, reactionary. Woe is me. I am lost. And he starts saying, I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of unclean people who have unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Which brings us to the point. A lot of people are like, you know what? If God is real, if God is real, then why doesn't he just show himself to me? Show yourself, God. Show me who you are. Take me to where you are. You wouldn't even say that about the Son. And here we are thinking, who's God then? What is he, a buddy? Is he like a pet cheetah? Sometimes you have to be careful. As long as he's caged, he's okay. If God is God, and he is, and you are transported to where he is in the state that you are in, you will die. Even in the sun, which is not as holy as God, not as separate about like God, you would still die. Imagine the creator of all the universe. Too easily we come to a point where we go, God is my buddy. God is my friend. And then we sing songs about him being our best buddy. But the essential idea of holiness we need to understand. If we want to understand why God will say something is holy, we need to understand why the Bible calls Him holy. And the concept of holiness being separate or distinct from something that is ordinary or common or already out there. So, in its initial usage, you could say holy as something good or bad. I think that's what people normally do. Like um, a temple prostitute is holy. Back in the day, they considered a temple prostitute holy because... She was different from an ordinary prostitute. A monk is holy because he's, he's different from an ordinary person. But holiness now has taken on this moral meaning that's derived from God's ultimate holiness. So it's mean, it means something a little bit different from the, what Bible originally intended. So if I, in today's language, culture said, wow, you're so holy, that means you must have done something morally outstanding. Either that, or you're being made fun of. Like, wow, you're so holy. You go to church every day, right? that kind of thing. And it's usually, usually the latter. Usually you're making fun of somebody when you call somebody holy. No one really goes, wow, you're so holy. Like, you're so holy, you know? And so it's usually the latter. But in the Bible, that's not the way the word is used. God is separate from everything else He's in a class by himself, absolutely. And John Piper says this about God's holiness. God, like the rarest diamond in the universe, is absolutely unique and infinitely valuable. And this is, we're talking about his holiness, his absolute uniqueness. That means his infinite value of beauty and excellence. This is what we know in Latin, and people have used this term, sui generis, right? Sui generis means he's in a class by himself, and he's above all things, he's distinct from everything, because everything else is not God. Therefore, he alone is of absolute worth. And so, when we think about holiness, we think of standards, people come up with this idea now. And now it's like, when I compete, when I do work, when I even do any kind of chore, 
It's uh, just do the best you can, right? And this is how we even teach young people. Let's say you're a teacher or a parent. Just do the best you can, buddy. But the idea of just doing the best you can, and I'm going to tie this in with holiness in a bit, the idea of just doing the best you can is, is, is somewhat ludicrous. It's a little ridiculous. Because let's say your ultimate goal in life is to get into Oxford, at least in this season of life. It's our particular season of life. It's to get into Oxford. I didn't want to use a, a U.S. university because, you know, I think... I honestly think MIT and Harvard are better than Oxford, but no offense, I don't think anybody here went to Oxford, uh, but you know, we have multiple people that went to Harvard and MIT here, so like, this doesn't relate to me, I went to, anyway, so I'm gonna say Oxford, okay? So if the ultimate season, or I'm sorry, the ultimate goal in life, or the season in your particular life is to get into Oxford, and you took your tests, you had your interviews, you submitted your essays, but you didn't get in. And you responded, but I did the best I can. The question is, did you fail or did you succeed in that goal? You can't say that the goal was do the best you can. And I think this is what people try to now say. The goal in life then isn't to get into Oxford, it's just to do the best I can. Because that itself, I think, is questionable. Because no one says life is about doing the best you can. That doesn't mean anything. You just continue to change it, and you change this moral standard to fit whatever you really want. Because what really is the best you can? Did you really, really do the best you can? And if you did the best you can, and you fail, what are you? Uh, so the best I can, or when we say the words, I did the best I can. It's an idiom that we use, even in culture, that we use when we fell short of a certain standard. So if you ran the race and you came in second, but before you had like the flu or you needed to do some kind of, like today was your PR day and you need to make that personal record and your record was to lift 850 pounds off the floor and you had the flu before and so you couldn't. You only lifted 813, which is terrible, right? And so you get to the interview, and this is what people would say. Uh, I did the best I could in spite of the flu I had, or in spite of getting over the flu. I ran as fast as I could in spite of you know, the sickness that I had two weeks before. I did the best I could given the circumstance. That was where the idiom came from. But now we've taken it to this meeting where we think the best I can is the standard. But it was never the standard. It's a cop-out. There is a standard. And the standard is holiness. What is that standard? And we need to understand what that holy standard is by first understanding what the Bible says about holiness. What does holy mean when God is holy in the Bible? What does holy mean when God says keep the Sabbath holy? And so, here he says in verse 13, Above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths, for this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations, that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. Now here's another word. What does sanctify mean? Sanctify, or sanctification, means to make holy. So there are processes that the Bible dictates 
when one becomes unclean, there's a process of sanctification or a ritual that needed to take place. Uh, in Leviticus 10.10, 10, it says you are to distinguish between the holy and the common, between the unclean and the clean. And so we, we start, if you really think about it, then natural and clean aren't necessarily synonymous. In fact, if something could be natural and something that's natural can make you unclean. Uh, take, for instance, all of Leviticus 15. When a man or a woman has a bodily discharge, they are considered unclean. I'm going to try to keep it PC for everybody, but just read Le uh, Leviticus 15. Um, now, any kind of discharge. Uh, women would have a bodily discharge and it would be blood during their... And men could have a bodily discharge, like a nocturnal emission or something like that. And if you would have these things, then you were considered unclean. There was a ritual that would need to take place. A lot of folk would chalk it up. This is about hygiene. And in part, it is kind of true. It did help. But I have to say, people generally knew that if you left emissions out in the open, that it would rot, right? Like if you left blood just out there sitting, just pool of blood somewhere, people, that's disgusting, that needs to be cleaned up. People had that general idea. Whatever discharge, whether it's seminal or blood, whatever it was, it would rot, it would attract flies, it would attract disease. So you would need to uh, clean it up because you don't want pestilence to start. But this wasn't just about cleanliness physically. It wasn't just about hygiene. There was more. Because after, let's say it was just about hygiene. God was just really considered about hygiene. So if there's like something dirty, I want you to clean it up. But that's not where he just ends. If you look at all of Leviticus, really, but he says for a whole week, you would be considered unclean. A whole week. So you clean it up and you would sit in your unclean state for seven days, seven full days. You have to start thinking, why? Why did God make this rule? Especially for the Israelites, who were already having a hard time in the desert. So if you were made unclean by some bodily discharge, you would sit there and do either one of two things, I think. One is you could either gripe that you are unclean, and then you have to go through all this. It's like, ugh, I'm unclean, I gotta go through this. Or two, think about why God would instate this rule. Why would God instate this rule? And this is uh, what I started thinking about. And you might also start to think along these lines. Although bodily discharges are a natural process in today's daily life, perhaps at one point it wasn't. Because God, didn't God make everything good? So what about this process isn't good? And then you would start, or I would start correlating the discharge or dissemination to something that is not proper or something that it's not supposed to do or being somewhere it's not supposed to be or not fulfilling its intended purpose. It did its best, but it failed. Then you start thinking about what God did and His intended order and how He commanded Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply, and so on and so forth. Maybe, just maybe you would, and I think it's fascinating that you would sit there for seven days in an unclean state, because if anybody touched you while you were unclean, they became unclean, so no one could touch you, so you just have to sit there like, 
I'm unclean. And you go through this process. And then you will see there's an order to the world that God has made. And this order is important because once you have order, you have true freedom. The rules of physics and understanding this order gave the ability to, to people to fly. Not chaos. So when we think about all these things, and I'm going to bring it back now to keeping the Sabbath because it's a holy day. Thinking about order. Thinking about how God intended it. Thinking about how God is perfect and absolutely unique but perfect in his ways. That means he is absolutely holy. Everything he says and does is perfect. And so when we say God is holy, and then he goes, now I want you to consider the Sabbath holy. It takes on a whole new meaning, doesn't it? It does. What does it mean when God wants his people to consider the Sabbath holy? To have, and he's saying, I am going to sanctify you. This way. I'm going to make you holy. So one thing that we can go on before going on to just the second verse. We've been on the first verse all this time. In keeping the Sabbath, God is intending to make his people holy. In keeping the Sabbath, God is intending to make his people holy. Verse 14, you shall keep the Sabbath because it is holy for you. Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. Whoever works Whoever does any work on it, the soul shall be cut off from among the people. If you didn't know what holiness was and you didn't get to, you might be like, wow, this is, this is a little rough. Just because I don't take a day off, I'm going to die? That's, I don't know, this is, did anybody even follow this rule? That's what you might be thinking. But if you follow this order that God is making and saying this is about an order that God has placed in the world, that means we start to understand it's going to give us life. And not following this order, it would naturally bring death. And yes, you may, or we may have initially thought, put to death, that's a little harsh, but not if you've been listening all this time, following closely along with everything that the Lord was teaching Moses and his people so far. Even the census tax, you might be like, the census tax makes no sense. It had huge implications because the census tax was, if you're going to count people, you have to tax them. And you can't even keep that money. It needs to go into the temple treasury. And then you're like, what? So I count people, get a census, I make them pay this tax of half a shekel, no matter how rich or poor they are. What? I, I, don't, I don't understand. But then when David did the census, if you, if you remember growing up, or maybe you heard it in another sermon, David, King David did a census, and the Lord was upset and put a pestilence, a plague on his people, and people just died. That's how angry God was. Like, census? What's going on here? But if you follow this order, you see that a census tax had huge implications that God did not like it when you counted people. And when who, who did they count? They didn't count women and children. They counted men who were 20 years and older. That means able-bodied men for what? For war. For war. So why would you count them? To compare. Compare with who? Other nations. For what? For war. And he hated that. If you're going to do that, there's going to be a tax. And everybody's going to suffer. 
So if you've been following along, you see that God is not only showing His holy character, but showing His people that I am not only going to show you this is what it means to be holy, I'm going to bring you into this holiness. Does that make sense now? And that's incredible. It's fascinating. And in verse 15 it says, Six days work shall be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath shall be put to death. That's twice he said it. So this is serious business. So we live in a day and age where rest isn't solemn anymore. No. Rest is how I can live up to the latest social media post I saw of other people taking vacations. Why is it no surprise that when people come back from vacations now, they confess that they are more tired than before they left. The end of that first sentence, holy to the Lord, should give us an inclination now that there is an order or a purpose God intended for Sabbath rest or in Sabbath rest. Just as there are natural rhythms in life, your heartbeat has a rhythm. It can't continue to pump a continuous stream, it'll die. Your heart can't do that. It pumps, then it stops. That's what we call a heartbeat. That's why if we want to get hyped, right, um, you listen to songs that are faster than your average heartbeat, right, or heart rate. So if your average heart rate is 70 to 90, then you would listen to uh, a song that's like 100 beats per minute. Yeah, you know, and like, and then, but then if you wanted to calm yourself down, normally people would listen to songs that are slower than your average heart rate. So why would you listen to a song that is faster than your average heart rate? Then it's to pump you up, it's to go into battle, it's to fight, to lift 850 pounds. Or songs that was slower to calm you down. But you are seeing now that there is a rhythm in life that God is showing His people that ought to be natural, that there should be a rest once a week, a solemn rest. So again, take the idea of vacation out of our heads. And if you're like me, yes, go on vacation. I'm not saying don't go on vacation. Go on vacation, but don't over plan. And take pictures and share them only with your loved ones in person. Not necessarily on social media especially if you are a social media junkie because then it won't be rest at all it'll be comparison shopping it'll be counting people to see who has more able-bodied men so you can go to war with them why does God command people to have this solemn rest because people that do not rest put their souls at risk now three things that you can see people without rest cannot attain joy. People without rest cannot attain joy because life without rest makes joy impossible to attain. People without rest are more frantic, frenzy, prone to anxiety, resentment, impatience, irritability. If you cannot get solemn rest because you say that you are too busy, I have six kids. You try having six kids. I have a 12-hour day job. I have two projects due in a week. Woe is me. 
But if you cannot overcome your busyness, and this is what Kevin DeYoung says, busyness is like sin. Kill it or it will be killing you. You will feel crushed by the daily grind. You will barely get through it and feel at peace for a very short while until the cycle starts up again only to realize you are a joyless wretch throughout the whole process before. People without rest cannot attain joy. Number two, people without solemn rest cannot have their hearts filled. Life without rest makes fullness impossible to obtain. Do you know why retreats, mission trips, summer camps, Christian conferences are almost always good for your soul? Because you have to clear your schedule to do them. It works because you leave the insanity behind and you get the space to think, to pray, to worship. It's when we get stuff, we realize, man, I have to do a lot of work to maintain this stuff, and now I have to work to keep it clean, keep it working, keep it up to date, keep, keep, keep. And before you know it, thorns have grown alongside you. And they are now sucking up the nutrients in the soil and blocking the sunlight from you. People without solemn rest cannot have their hearts filled. And lastly, people without solemn rest cannot stay clean. Life without rest makes cleanness impossible to obtain. I'll tell you what I mean by cleanness. Like anything in life, work, 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 and you will have a buildup of dust, of grime, of rot sometimes. And we would do it for our machines and our cars, wouldn't we? Even our pets. Because we know these things will fall apart if we don't clean it. But when we're too busy to check up on our souls, what are we so afraid of finding? It's like the old man who refuses to go to the hospital because they might find something wrong with him. He goes, I know my body and I'm fine. Some of you may giggle at that, but that was my grandpa. And he would say, I know my body. I don't need to go to the hospital. Until he couldn't take it anymore. And I remember, because he had cancer, his prostate grew so big, uh, the ambulance came, and then I went down um, to the ambulance, saw my grandpa being carried into the ambulance. And he was yelling, like crying out in pain. And that was one of the most... Um, helpless moments that I felt because when you love somebody, it doesn't matter who it is, when you love someone deeply and you can't do anything about the anguish that they're going through, it hurts you deep inside, but you can't think about that. You're just thinking, do something. He's yelling in pain, right? And then he was sitting up and they and then they were just doing the, the, the EMT people were just doing their thing and he was just yelling for a good few minutes. He was just yelling at the top of his lungs, this 88-year-old man. And then eventually they put the cot down, and then he was relaxed. Uh, he couldn't even sit up. That's how bad it was. So the things like that should make us think, what are you waiting for? Is it so that until your cancer is so enlarged you can't even sit up straight? And people without solemn rest cannot stay clean. Life without 
rest makes cleanness impossible to obtain. So our joy, our fullness, and our souls are in danger if we don't get this solemn rest. We need it desperately. And God shows it to us and His people that this is what you need. This is the true rhythm of life that was intended when God created the world and He rested on the seventh day. God Himself participated in this rhythm. And He says it in verse 17 Himself. It is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days the Lord made heaven and earth and on the seventh day He rested and was refreshed. God participated in this rhythm of life. Now the Jewish people had 39 sabbatical categories in which they would allow or not allow certain practices on the Sabbath. And I still think they do. But in comes Jesus. And he says something when the leaders of the day claim that Jesus wasn't following the sabbatical laws. And he goes, the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. God participated in this rhythm of life and He showed from the very beginning that this Sabbath rest and all the sabbatical laws from the time of Moses would lead up to Jesus. Jesus is the true rest. And you're like, wait, come on, you can't just say the answer is Jesus all the time. So I'm busy. I'm really busy, Pastor Eugene. What do I do? You can't just tell me I'm busy. The answer is Jesus. Or can you? What does that even mean to say I'm busy? What should I do? I really am busy. I, I can't even have, I don't have time to think sometimes. Solemn rest is impossible. Help me. Give me some kind of application. And you see some guy on the stage going, the answer is Jesus. Like, what does that even mean? The Lord of the Sabbath statement was given in Matthew 12. And just before the end of Matthew 11, this is what he says. This is what he says. Now think of all this being put together like puzzle pieces. He says this, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. Come to me, all who labor. Remember, how long are we supposed to labor in this, ex in this passage that we saw? You labor for seven, six days, on the seventh day you rest. And Jesus tells us, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That's what Jesus himself says. So it's not just me saying the answer is Jesus. He, I'm saying Jesus himself said this. Six days you will work in the seventh day. Jesus, in your weekly rhythm, you need rest. In the rhythm of life, you need Jesus. Only in Jesus can you have joy. John 15, 11, these things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Only in Jesus can you have the fullness of life. John 10, 10, the thief comes to only steal and destroy, kill, destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly to the full. And only in Jesus can your life and your soul be restored. John 10, 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Romans 5 says, while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one would scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps a good person, one would even dare to die. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In Jesus, we have our soul restored. He says, I am the good shepherd. 
what does that even mean? If you say, I am the good shepherd, what is the most famous psalm that would pop into your head? Psalm 23, verse 3. He restores my soul. The good shepherd restores my soul. So what's this rest all about? Jesus? Yes! What about it specifically? Knowing Jesus then brings us to worship. Yes, all this beauty and majesty that we see in creation and God's incredible plan for His creation is now reflected back to Him in worship. And this is why when the question is, is Sabbath then Saturdays? Well, Sabbath literally means Saturday, but is when we rest supposed to be a Sabbath? The answer is no. The idea that you would hold worship on Sabbath, and some people think is really interesting. I don't know where people got this. Sabbath was always intended for rest. I don't know where we got now. We're supposed to gather to worship on a Sabbath. It was for rest, and the disciples of Christ realized this. So that's why they realized Christ is the fulfillment of the Sabbath, and so they met on the Lord's Day, which is Sunday, which is where we meet. But not only that, they didn't just meet on Sunday. When did they meet? When did the disciples meet? I just gave you a hint. They didn't just meet on Sunday. Yeah, that's right. They met Wednesday night for no. They didn't just meet Wednesday nights. It says in Acts chapter two, verse. If you if you grew up in a Korean church, you you get that because every Korean church that I know always meets on Wednesday nights. But if you read Acts chapter two, verse forty six, it says, "And day by day." NIV says, "Every day." Attending the temple together, breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with a glad and generous heart. They met every day. Every day. It didn't have to be in 125 Galway. It didn't. It could be in your home. This is what we call small group. It could be some someplace else, like you could meet in a coffee shop, where you share the word and you break bread. But every day you would meet. So is it is Sunday a holy day or is every day a holy day? And this is what actually people were talking about in Romans when Paul was addressing it. Romans 14, chapter uh, chapter 14, verse 5, it says, One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. He's saying every day is absolutely holy. And yes, Sunday is holy. So if you go... Is Sunday holy or now Jesus Christ is every day holy because our rest isn't in a day. It pointed to Jesus Christ so we get full rest when we are in Jesus. So every day can be holy, reflected back in worship, not just Sunday. So is Sunday holy or is every day holy? And the answer is yes. We understand now Sunday versus every day, which one is holier? Yes. Okay. In Jesus Christ, we have a solemn rest that we could have never attained otherwise. And the reason why we gather in particular, the large gathering, is because today we celebrate Resurrection Sunday. This is the Lord's Day, if you've heard that before. It's the Lord's Day because Jesus Christ rose on the first day of the week. And all other days we can also consider holy because in Christ we have a joy a fullness, a holiness, and we worship Him all the time now. Why did God bring people to the mountain? Don't you remember? It's so that we can worship Him. Why did He end all this talk 
giving the Ten Commandments first, I get it, but He ended it with the Sabbath so that we can worship Him with all that we have. How can we be free from anxiety? Our rest is found in Jesus. How can we be free from exhaustion? Our rest is found in Jesus. How can we be free from the misery that death brings? Our rest is found in Jesus who died from our, for our sins, but God raised Him up. And now He is seated at God's right hand. He is the keeper of our souls. And if He is the keeper of our souls, what can separate us now from His love? So are you tired? Are you weary? Are you exhausted? Then hear our Savior's words today renewed. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. Let's worship Him. Let's pray. Let's reflect on the word that we've been given this morning. And as we reflect, we must realize that we are not perfect.